Let me begin uh, a little background uh, in order to put all of this in perspective, and we'll circle back to some of these things in a minute. So first of all, uh, Lynn mentioned that I pastored uh, for 32 years. So I, I come out of the, the church world, and I'll have a chance to hear from some of you. I hope you'll send some questions at the end of the uh, PowerPoint presentation I'm going to give, and then we'll take a little break there and answer some questions. And then I've got the rest of the presentation around Missions 3.0, and we'll uh, we'll spend some more time talking at the end of that. But um, it, it might help you to, to to have a little bit of context. So um, pastoring, uh, as as in any church, uh, churches have mission programs, and uh, like so many others who get involved in short-term missions and various other kinds of things amongst the poor. Uh, early on, there's a lot of enthusiasm. You Your heart gets broken in the stuff that you're doing and seeing. But if you stay in it long enough, y- you begin to realize, ah, we're just kind of running in circles here. And you start asking the questions about, man, is, is this really making a lasting difference? Or is this the best that we can do, the church? I mean by that. And, and that was my journey. And so as I pastored churches, Uh, I began to wrestle with the stuff that we were doing overseas, as well as the stuff that we were doing in the context of poverty uh, right here domestically. So that led me to um, just under 15 years ago to step away from the pulpit and to start this ministry called Significant Matters. And at the time, not completely understanding where it was going to lead me other than this intuitive sense that that the face of missions was changing. We we had to f- begin thinking differently about it. And um, and over the past 15 years, um, what you're going to hear about today has kind of grown in a, in a rather iterative process to, uh, to what we're doing right now with Missions 3.0. But I, I want you to know that it, it comes out of this deep sense that the church is meant to be uh, a relevant force, not just proclaiming a message for the hereafter, which I deeply believe in, but also about a proclamation of a message for the here and now. And I think that's where the church finds itself right now. So what you're gonna what you're gonna see and what we're gonna kind of work on uh, over this next hour is where that has led us and how we're working um, how we're working with churches. And then to tie it back to bridges out of poverty, I'm gonna jump ahead and say that, uh, in the second part of this presentation, I'll talk about what we call the four practices of Missions 3.0. And one of those uh, one of those practices has to do with reframing expectations, uh, in particular, reframing expectations of volunteers. And when we are when we get into talking about uh, that concept, we're trying to challenge churches to understand that part of the reason that we've ended up in these conversations around toxic charity and when helping that hurts is because we haven't thought deeply enough about the kinds of things that we train our volunteers to do through our church missions. So it's easy to get people to bring something for an angel tree or to do back snacks or to, or to package some food that you're going to send overseas. That's the kind of stuff that you can do kind of one and done. Um, But the more we look at, what the poor need, both domestically and internationally, we're coming to understand we've got to have more than just a heart. We've got to have a head. 
we've got to be able to think clearly about what it is that we're doing. So we talk about how do you how do you build a different kind of volunteer force? How does the church begin to train volunteers differently so that those volunteers could actually participate in the kinds of things that could help people break the cycle of poverty? So uh, obviously, if we're doing that with churches, we're looking for some of the best practices out there. And we ran across a number of churches that we were working with that were using the Bridges Out of Poverty material and the Getting Ahead curriculum uh, in this very space. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized, oh my goodness, this is the kind of stuff. Uh, this is These are the kinds of training opportunities we need to begin developing and helping uh, our churches and their church mission departments uh, see these things over time. So that's the connection back. And I'll come back to this in the second half of the presentation and tie bridges into what we call one of our four practices, which is reframing expectations. But let me let me let me get to the problem statement and um, something that I suspect all of us can relate to a little bit. So if you'll go with me to the big kind of the macro level of what church missions and even secular philanthropy as a whole is dealing with uh, in the world today, is that we've kind of come to the end of what our typical and traditional charity models have been able to uh, accomplish. And so we've, um, we've run into a challenge that uh, for as, as long as we know, uh, as we have known, there is this sense inside of us that those who have ought to be giving to those who don't have. And that it's some kind of a transactional thing that I give, you receive, or those in need receive. Uh, I feel good about having given. Uh, they feel good about having uh, having uh, gotten. And, uh, and we go on our merry way only to repeat it over and over and over again. And as we've kind of come to the end of that model, we begin to dissect a little bit what it is that we've been doing. We begin to categorize some things. So I'm going to go through those categories that we use. And we're not alone in this. Um, if you're familiar with Bob Lupton and CCDA and, and those entities, um, they use the same uh, basic rubric, if you will. But here's the challenge that for the longest time, um, we have been delivering relief and that when tragedy happens, uh, the church is one of the first and uh, most prolific uh, donors of both time time and money to help with uh, relief efforts. And so uh, many church missions are doing a lot in the area of relief. And we define relief as emergency aid to reduce immediate suffering. But we, we've all come to the realization that relief in and of itself does not help break the cycle of poverty with folks. That in fact, uh, over time, it can end up creating dependencies. And so to our relief, we have begun to develop what we would call individual betterment programs. And so in our definition, we would call individual betterment services aimed at equipping individuals with skills and or abilities to provide for their own basic needs. So it's like we've got to get beyond just um, the alleviation of pain and difficulties. We've got to get to the point where we're actually building capacity within individuals. So the church there, too. Has, has been really good over the centuries at developing individual betterment kinds of programs. But what we have found is that relief and individual betterment combined do not build stronger, sustainable communities. That instead, 
we end up with the blindside phenomenon. That relief and betterment become a way out of the community. I mean, how many of us have seen this, the story of the blindside? Absolutely love the movie. Absolutely love the story. Uh, Michael Orr and where he ends up now playing professional football. But if you if you talk to any pastor in the urban core, they'll tell you the same thing, that if a kid gets help through the relief and individual betterment that suburban churches, I for example, pour into an individual community, that the success is, is um, tied to the number of kids that get out of the community. Thus, depleting the community of some of the best and the brightest. So the more we, we, we have succeeded at relief and individual betterment, pouring those into a particular community, the more we have provided ways out and in fact depleted the community. So how do we begin to wrestle with that phenomenon? Everybody is understanding that with relief and betterment, we have to add a third dimension. We call it community development. We define it as investments and establishments that increase the wealth generating capacity of a community, strengthens infrastructure and improves the quality of life uh, for all. And so when we first started going down this road and we began to try to work with people in this particular area, we had to get um, real specific about what we meant by community development because all of us want to call what we're doing in the community, community development. And it's not my intention to argue that. I, uh, what, I would, what I would suggest has been borne out over and over again is that whatever it is that we have called community development, it, is not, it has not reached the level in which it is helping people or communities lift themselves out of poverty. So we then began to define very specifically that what we're meaning by community development are these kinds of things here. How do we, how do we create the conditions by which uh, economic and businesses would want to relocate in that neighborhood? How do we get to job creation in that neighborhood? How do we get to the access of capital? How do we help communities get to the place where they are um, renter dominated to home ownership? I mean, could the church play any role in that kind of development strategy over time? And so we then began to begin, uh, get very specific about what we mean in our Missions 3.0 work with churches on relief, individual better betterment, and community development. So for us, the focus in relief is on acute needs. It is crisis-oriented. At the individual betterment level, our focus is on abilities, capacity, and exposing people to opportunities and possibilities. But at the community development level, our programs, the things that we're doing, our initiatives are focused on access. How do you get access to capital to start a small business if you're a felon coming out of the penal system? Uh, how do we help people gain ownership and how do we improve the environment? That, If you look at those particular areas of focus, they are very different. And then if you go a little further and you add to that the next level, our examples then in the relief area have to do with things like disaster relief, soup kitchens, food pantries, homeless shelters. All of those things are necessary. At the individual betterment, we're moving a little a little further into the um, into the into 
capacity building. So it's about tutoring and mentoring, training skills, as you can see, home repair, those kinds of things. At the community development level, can we begin to think in terms of economic development? Can we think in terms of financial services, home ownership, infrastructure, and safety, and those kinds of things? I have another sheet in a little bit that'll go through these, um, through a few more categories in this realm, uh, but let this kind of serve as an example for right now. The metrics of success and relief are the number of people that we've served. And so as churches, we want to know how many people did we serve? How many people got the things and the products and the resources that we that we meant to give them? At the individual betterment level, we're talking about the number of people equipped. How many went through our training? How many now know how to do financial planning? How many know how to and you fill in the blank? But at the uh, community development level, we're measuring something completely different. We're, we're talking about a community's quality of life and its ability to sustain it so that it doesn't need our help and our resources anymore. And if you've read the book, When Helping Hurts, they suggest that the failure to distinguish among these situations, these three different categories, is one of the most common reasons that poverty alleviation efforts often do harm. And it's because we try to extend the things that we're doing in relief and betterment and, and call them community development, which again, call them whatever you want. We don't mean to argue that point. What we mean to say is that when we talk about these three different categories, they mean very different things to us. And by being very precise in this area, it's helped us to begin to add and develop some things in that third category that are not typically and traditionally found in the other two, which is what we're finding is what is transitioning the kind of mission work that we're working with across the country, across the world, into different kinds of results. So our argument is that sustainability, if what we're after is to get to a place where people no longer need our benevolent resources, then uh, it's not about eliminating emergency relief. It's not about eliminating individual betterment, but it's about putting the three, emergency relief, individual betterment, and community development into a continuum that makes sense, a continuum that doesn't create dependencies uh, by doing too much emergency relief in the wrong places at the wrong time or expecting individual betterment in and of itself all by itself to simply somehow <clears throat> help a person um, get to the next level in their life. A way to, a, 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 an example that, that I can give you in, in what we're talking about here is there are in many communities, um, there are programs that have been developed to help the poor think through entrepreneurial skills, business startups, and those kinds of things. And so they'll, they'll take people, and oftentimes they'll be um, men between 18 and 40 who are coming out of the prison systems, and uh, they've paid their debt. They're really wanting to make a difference, and maybe some of those are even involved in your church. They've got some skills. They'll go through an entrepreneurship program. They'll get their business plan. They'll They'll figure out how to use QuickBooks. They'll figure out how to do a pitch and all of that sort of stuff. So they've gone through what that would all be individual betterment to us. They go through the whole process and they get to the end and they need, they need $8,000. They need an $8,000 loan to start a roofing business. I'm just making this up. And yet they can't get access to capital because of their felony background. That's what we're talking about, that when betterment 
trains people, but then we don't find a way to help them get access to the next level of things that they need to move to the next level. All we do is end up creating frustrations. The question we've been asking as we've been working with churches is how do we begin to add that third piece to the kinds of things that churches do individually and even collectively uh, across the country? And I'll share some stories about how some churches are actually doing that, um, what they've added in that third category of community development alongside of the other two. So our idea and our picture of sustainability is every community a place where basic needs are met without outside charitable resources and where the community itself can provide the means and opportunities for individuals to grow and achieve their potential. We found that we had to create a definition of what we meant by sustainability in order to really put a fine point in it and begin to pull together some really smart people that exist within our churches to figure out how do we begin to solve that third piece of the puzzle that we've talked about right there. And so what, um, what we've been asking ourselves is can the church be a leader in the realm of sustainability and community development the way it has been in relief and individual betterment? If you think about it, uh, no single organization in human history has done nearly what the church collectively has done in these two categories that we're defining as emergency relief and individual betterment. So we have proven that the church can, can deliver care and service and those kinds of things. Can we, can we up our game? Can we become a catalyst? Can we become a leader in what we're calling this third category of community development? And I believe we can. I, I, I don't believe it's by accident that the church has access to the resources that it has, both financial and subject matter expertise. And so what we began doing about four years ago was um, churches were reading the books, Toxic Charity and When Helping Hurts. And they, they had gotten to the point where they were no longer arguing that some of their helping was leading to hurting. And now they were saying to us, okay, we get it. How can we, how can we get beyond the problem, become part of the solution? So we started bringing people together from around the world, actually, who were leaders in this area. They were already doing some things around sustainability. We, we shamelessly borrowed from the TED Talk uh, motif and created what we call SAT, S-A-T Talks, and that stands for Sustainability and Transformation. And it's all about faith-based groups and churches that are on the front end of this, trying to figure out how to reframe their mission work so that they're getting to sustainable solutions. We found that what churches just needed was uh, a picture, a story of folks out on the front end doing these things as a way to begin to reimagine. And then we've begun doing some other things with churches along that realm. Uh, we have found that for churches to change the kinds of things that they're doing to add that third dimension in a meaningful way, that it typically takes about two to three years to change the trajectory of a church. That if, that if church, I mean, most churches find themselves in uh, partnerships with various ministries that um, they're, they're a mile wide and an inch deep, and they're trying to figure out how do we navigate 
this. We've got all of these programs and all of these partnerships that have been built over decades and decades, and we don't even know some of the people that are involved. They were part of a church at some point. And how do we, what do we do with all of this? And we have found that it takes about two to three years to kind of work through and change the trajectory of a church's mission department so that it's focused more on uh, the kinds of a continuum that helps people break the cycle of poverty and that church is deploying its resources in different ways. It takes about three to five years to begin to change the stories. Uh, and it takes about five to 10 years to really begin to see the, um, uh, the, the impact and the metrics and the results that you're looking at in this whole process. So we do, a, we do uh, workshops and we also do peer learning communities of six to eight churches that work together over a two to three year time period. Um, my conviction is that I share uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick's thoughts that the church is primarily an instrument in God's hands to bring personal and social righteousness upon the earth. When our mass influence overcomes a public evil or establishes a public good, men find the justification of our existence and a first-rate weapon of apologetic argument in her behalf. Um, I, I, I can't tell you how many pastors and churches I talk with who struggle with the reality that the church has lost a lot of its relevancy uh, in the culture today, that we're, pastors are struggling with where do we fit? And uh, Barna just came out with a new report talking about the state of pastors. And it's, it's no secret that the culture in and of itself is not as um, open to the church as it has existed um, over the course of our lifetime. And at the same time, I am finding that in all of the places that we're working with churches that are leaning into this particular area, that they're finding greater and greater relevancy in their communities as they figure out how to be an answer to the kinds of questions, questions that our communities are asking around poverty and things like that. Uh, I think the church has an opportunity in this day and age to be more relevant than it's ever imagined it could be, provided we can step up to this third dimension of community development. And we call the overall process Missions 3.0 simply because um, 1.0 to us is uh, mobilizing money, 2.0 is mobilizing people, but 3.0 is developing the structures and the strategies necessary to help people and whole communities move outside of, uh, move beyond the poverty that they find themselves in. So <clears throat> that's the need, that's kind of the, the problem statement uh, and a summary of what led us to uh, developing what I'm going to share with you um, in the PDF that should have come out early. But I thought I'd stop here and field some questions uh, or some thoughts, or maybe as much as anything, maybe some responses. Um, is any of what I've just shared uh, similar to your journey, your church's journey? Does any of this sound familiar? Are you... Uh, I'm going to give you a chance for questions right now before I jump into the next segment. Any questions or thoughts? So I'm I'm perusing the responses, and it sounds like I'm leaning into a group that is experiencing 
life and missions much the same that we have. Yes. So Rebecca, thank you, Rebecca. Um, I, I agree. And what we're finding, you know, what we're, what we're finding is that we're just so good. We really are good at relief and betterment. And we've gotten so good that it's become somewhat easy. And uh, our church members have become somewhat addicted to the easiness of relief and betterment. So it's not just the people that we're working with that are struggling, <coughs> excuse me, with the dependencies. It's the, uh, it's the church is equally um, addicted to the, the whole process as well. All right, we will send you the PowerPoints here. Let me let me jump into the next one because now we start to to get into and I'll I'll share you I'll share with you where we began to to go, and uh, what began to happen as we stepped into this space along the way. So so let me let me give you kind of the 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 skeleton the framework of what we call missions 3.0, and this PDF file that you have here gives you some of the stuff that. Um, that I've been talking about as well, and I need to I need to go back and um, about four or five years ago, as we were trying to figure out how do we move forward, what is it that we need to do that's uh, that's different. Uh, we were working with a a group here in the Kansas City area um, to do what we call Missions 3.0, and we had partnered with uh, University of Missouri Kansas City UMKC. To, to try to get into that third category. And we were doing stuff around job creation, also around home ownership and things like that. And they were doing a social entrepreneurship conference with social entrepreneurship programs from, uh, excuse me, from around the country. And we got invited to present to this group uh, to do a plenary session. And uh, myself and the head of the real estate, the graduate real estate uh, department there at UMKC was asked to do that. And so most of my presentations obviously are in front of churches. So I decided that what I would do is uh, pose a secular value proposition for why the community would want to work with the church. And so um, I stood up in front of a, a group at the Kaufman Center, a well-known philanthropic organization in the Kansas City area that focuses on entrepreneurship. And I started out this way. If I were an atheist, now I'm not, but if I were an atheist, I would want to work with the church. And up on the screen was a picture of the co-op, which is the ministry that we were doing. It clearly stated that we were churches working together to create neighborhoods where people would want to live and not leave. So there was no mistake that the church was involved in this. Everybody knew that. And when I said, if I were an atheist, I'd still want to work with the church. And here's why. I had everybody's attention. And then they're right there on your screen. I went through these four things. I said, the first reason is the church is the greatest mobilizer of philanthropic, philanthropic giving in the world. And I could see heads shake all across the audience. Yep, you're right. No entity in the world gives more financially to the cause of poverty and the marginalized than the church. The second reason I'd want to work with the church is because they're the greatest mobilizer of volunteers in the world. And again, nobody, nobody wanted to disagree or argue with that proposition as well. And we're not going to be able to do these things by paying people. There's going to have to be volunteer work. The church is the first in. The third reason is that we're the first in and the longest to stay in difficult times and places. Again, 
when tragedy hits, the church comes and the church stays long after others have gotten bored and burned out with it. And the fourth reason is that the church is the greatest, has the greatest delivery system in the world. And nobody wanted to argue. Now, I've since done this presentation in various places across the country, and I've shared this same story. And I have never had anybody come up to me and say, nope, I, I wouldn't want to work with the church. Everybody comes up to me and says, you are so right, Tom. If the church could become as good at what you're calling development as it has been at relief and betterment, we would work with them in a heartbeat. And I'm finding that to be true everywhere that I go, that as the church does those kinds of things and becomes uh, more adept at that third category, the more doors begin to open with them. So you can kind of look through the rest of it. We talk a little bit more about in these first two pages um, of this PDF about uh, the models and various things. And we explain missions 3.0 a little bit more. But what I want to do is I want to jump down to um, this page and just let you see it. I'm going to spin through it. I was uh, showing you some of these things just a minute ago. You'll have this in the handout, the PDF file. Uh, this is an extended version of what you saw on the PowerPoint slide. Uh, we found that as we began working with our churches, we had to become very specific about definitions, that if you didn't get the definitions right, the whole thing was going to be muddled. So we had to talk about what's the focus, what's the target, what's the dynamic, what are the characteristics, uh, what does money do, um, what do volunteers do in relief, betterment versus development, what does it look like, what are the metrics of success, and what is the shadow or what is the dark side or what is the potential downside of, of these things. And we found that as we use this, we call it the RBD tool, as we use this, it gives churches the opportunity to process definitions with their congregants to help them better understand and then to begin to look at where they're heavy. So we actually do an assessment process with churches in which we ask them to measure where they're at. I mean, their, their programs, their partnerships, and their volunteer opportunities to create a list. And in virtually every church that we work with, uh, over 90% of what they're doing would fall by our definitions in the first two categories, relief and betterment. And again, we say that's not, look, we don't need to beat ourselves up over this. We've just gotten good at those things. And it's not just us. It's the world at large is wrestling with this. We just now need to put our thinking hats on and begin to figure out how to do things around the community development level that we've never figured out how to do, but it's all doable. So I want to take you to the, the next page, if I can get this to go. There you go. So here's the, here's the framework. I'm going to give you um, the words to fill in the blanks right there. And again, we'll send this off to you if you don't have it. I'm sorry. But um, the first thing we do as we start working with churches is work through these definitions, and uh, we call it emergency relief that relief needs to be about solving acute needs in the emergency. It needs to have a, a time span and we need to be done with it. Haiti is a classic example of a country that was just bombarded with relief that became a way of life. And they're still trying to figure out how to uh, wean themselves from that. So emergency relief um, at a church, uh, what are your emergency relief strategies and programs and partnerships and how do they fit into a continuum that leads to individual betterment? How does relief uh, set yourself up or the folks that you're working with 
to then begin to build capacity with them at the betterment level? And then how do those two things set you up and how do you partner them with the kinds of uh, individuals, groups, and strategies within a community that actually begin to create the conditions for people to lift themselves out of uh, poverty? So as we wrestled with that, I got invited to um, speak to a group of large churches up in the up in the Chicago area. So these are churches you'd probably recognize their names. At the time, uh, I was in a conversation with the Global Impact Investment Network out of the Rockefeller Foundation, and they were talking about uh, they were talking about global impact investing and and how to help people in sub-Saharan Africa and those kinds of things. And they were developing the 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 terminology and the language, the definitions that they would use so they could begin to measure and track things a little bit differently. And I, I asked them, do you have anybody from the faith-based community, any churches that are uh, participating in this? And they said, no. And I asked them, would you be interested? They said, yes. And knowing that I was going to be with these very large church mission pastors uh, the next week, uh, we worked it out to have um, them Skyped in. And uh, I was all excited thinking this is going to be great. Uh, the church is going to find that it has a seat at the table and going to be a part of this huge, I mean, out of the Rockefeller Foundation. And in a 20-minute presentation, it just completely went over the heads of all of the mission pastors sitting in that room from some of the largest churches in the country, sharp people. And I found myself going, there's something wrong here. We're, we're, missing, uh, we're missing something. So that night, I went back to the hotel room and just wrestled with it and tried to think, and asking myself kind of in a time of prayer, God, what is going on here? Uh, these are bright people, and yet they, they can't see the opportunity that lies here to be a part of a larger conversation, uh, not just in this country, but around the world. And as I began to mull that over and think, okay, what is it? What is it? What is it? What's the pressures going on? And it dawned on me, ah, oh, these are all mission pastors that are living in the the tension between various stakeholders that they're responsible for in the world of missions. And it just became very clear to me. I mean, I've, I've been in this long enough to know that I've got people picking at me all the time as a pastor or in missions department. And I realized, and we came up with the four domains, that in every mission work, there are four stakeholders or four domains. The first one is the volunteer. And the volunteer represents a, 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 a particular uh, mindset and mission. And in your church, I'm guessing some of you are mission pastors of your church. You have people that are interested in a positive volunteer experience. I mean, that's that's really where they're at in the whole process of missions. They're they're interested in their children having a positive volunteer experience. And and at that level, you're not looking at the more complicated things that are going on in the context of missions. You're simply as a volunteer early on looking for a positive volunteer experience, and you're expecting the mission pastor to provide that for you, preferably on a Saturday morning at 9.30, 9.45 at the latest, because you have peewee baseball before that, and you've got tap dance after that, and you'd like it to be an intergenerational thing because your husband isn't very excited about church, but you think maybe if you could get him to this mission thing, he'd see that it's a caring church, and I'm making this up as I go. But most of us have been there that as a mission pastor, you're getting a call from people saying, basically, as a volunteer, I need a positive volunteer experience for these folks within my church or my, within my family. Can you make it happen? So you've got the volunteer, which is one domain. The, the second domain we call, it's the resource church. 
And that means that's your church. That's you, those of us that are on this. You you have resources that you are putting into missions. And as part of the resource church, you, the mission pastor, are responsible to add, to answer to your mission department, to your senior pastor, to all of the expectations that the resource church has. So what does the pastor need? Well, the pastor needs a 30-second soundbite that they can use. Again, I'm making this up. I'm being anecdotal here, but the senior pastor needs a 30-second soundbite of something you did in a mission uh, effort recently that they can put up on the screen on Sunday morning to help with the offering that you're going to take to help support missions. And so the mission pastor may have a deeper understanding of the needs of people in poverty and what it takes to help that, but they're being pulled and pushed to provide those 30-second anecdotes and those immediate results for the church because the resource church is one of those four stakeholders and they have certain needs and wants and expectations there. But the third domain or the third stakeholder in all missions is what we call the partners. And so if you are responsible for missions in your church, you're not only responsible to provide the church the information they need, the volunteers in your church, the experiences they need, you're also responsible to provide the partners that you're working with some kind of oversight and accountability and some results, some money and some criteria for why you're going to give money here and why you're not going to give money there and how to manage this unbelievable request for funding to do all kinds of things. So the partner represents very clearly another whole domain that has their own set of expectations. And then finally, the fourth domain is what we call the community itself, the very people that you, that we're trying to help. And do, does the community, do, does, does the poor or whatever that, how you define the community in a particular ministry setting, do they care about a positive volunteer experience for rich white folks from the uh, suburbs? I'm being stereotypical here. And the answer is, you and I both know they don't. They, as a matter of fact, oftentimes they feel objectified because of the way in which volunteers from suburbia oftentimes completely misunderstand the context of poverty. So you can see already how I got introduced or, or, or why I was attracted to Bridges Out of Poverty. Because at, at, at that very first domain of the volunteer, uh, how do we help volunteers begin to understand the role that they play, the training they need, the understanding that they need in that place? So as we began to work with more and more churches and just explain those four domains, what we found is the, the pressure just started to go way down. And churches said, yes, you're describing the tension that I'm living in every day. So what we try to do through our Missions 3.0 work is we try to change the tension that is normal and very real in those four domains into traction. And we do that through what we call the four practices. Um, and the four practices are simply <clears throat> reframing expectations. So how do we begin to reframe the expectations of volunteers? And that's where we use resources like Bridges Out of Poverty. Um, work with Phil Hissom out of... Um, Orlando and the stuff that he's doing with Dignity Serves. Uh, there's so many things that we're saying to churches, look, you've, you've got to up your game when it comes to reframing the expectations of volunteers. Sure, have entry-level things. If you want to plant flowers and do some things like that, but make sure that it's done in a place and in a way and with the poor 
such that you're not objectifying. And as we begin to break down the framework, people can go, okay, that helps me. There you go. I'm getting my head around it. We say the second uh, practice is you have to begin to champion collaboration. You, you cannot do this on your own. If you're trying to bring about true transformation, it's going to require you working with indigenous. And we work with churches that obviously have um, efforts both domestically and internationally, but it's the same thing. You must work in an asset-based community development approach with indigenous leaders. So that's a second <clears throat> practice. And we do a lot of things in helping people figure out what that looks like. We use the collective impact model as the kind of a, the gold standard of what uh, collaboration could look like and needs to look like if we're going to get to the truly changing the, the outcomes. Uh, and then the third uh, practice we talked about is tackling outcomes. Um, if you're trying to get people to the point where they can sustain their own future, then you, you've got to be able to measure that. And we're not saying we haven't figured out or anybody hasn't figured out, but we, we have to figure it out. And uh, we're work, beginning to work with some folks. We're working with a group here in the Kansas City area uh, on, a, uh, on a, a program to, to track outcomes and inputs and impact and all of those sort of things. The fourth practice then uh, within a church is cultivating innovation. And that's what you'll see in a lot of our SAT talks. You'll just see some exciting things, a group out of uh, Fresno, California, that's doing the, the uh, spark tank, a play on the word shark tank. So what they've done, and this, I said, I would share this with you. So what they've done is they've got the entrepreneurial program in which they're training uh, people to start businesses, but then they have gone to business people and churches in the community and they've raised the capital so that every year they have a pitch event in which uh, people that have gone through the entrepreneurship program pitch in front of this group. And uh, at the end of it, they can get the capital that they need. Now they don't, they don't have enough capital to give everybody and they don't give capital to bad ideas, but you see the point is that until we start closing the loop if you will. The third practice is tackling outcomes. And I'm just moving here. So if I'm going past stuff, keep keep uh, um, hollering at me. Thank you. So tackling outcomes means you're, you're looking for ways to measure what it is that you're doing. And please hear me when I say um, nobody has these things figured out. This is a process in which we're inviting the church. <clears throat> the fourth domain was uh, the community itself. It's a, think of these as stakeholders. The first one is the volunteer. The second one is the resource church. The third one is the partners. And the fourth one is the community. So um, all of Missions 3.0 is done from the vantage point of the resource church. How do we help the resource church manage what they're doing in those four domains? How do we help them build the skills in the four practices, reframing expectations. How do you use Poverty Cure? How do you use Poverty Inc? How do you use When Helping That Hurts? How do you use some of these things that are out there that can begin to help you reframe expectations? And then what we have learned is, and, and this is all what we call the Missions 3.0 framework, and I'm going fast, hopefully to leave some time for questions. Um, what we're saying is, look, church, it, this takes time. And um, if you think that you can do this uh, just in a weekend uh, workshop or even in just a one hour workshop like this, you're, you're kidding yourself. Uh, this takes time. So we say the process is a process of continuous disruption. Uh, churches that go down this 
road uh, have to be willing to kind of step into the concept of disruptive innovation. Uh, the second uh, key component in the process is action learning. Uh, our peer learning communities are about act and learn that you can't just continue to analyze and overanalyze this. You have to create action plans in six month intervals, go back and act on them. And, and the, the path forward continues to emerge as you act on these plans. Uh, again, nobody has this figured out. Uh, we will figure it out through an act and learn process. And then the third the third component in the process is a long-term view. Uh, again, this isn't going to happen uh, overnight. We find it takes uh, two to three years to change the trajectory of your church, three to five to change the narratives, the stories that are coming out, and five to 10 to change the actual results. <clears throat> the kind of leadership that's necessary uh, for the Mission 3.0 work is uh, leadership that's willing to embrace complexity because this is not easy. Uh, but my goodness, we already know how to embrace complexity. Why should we think that uh, the first process, continuous disruption, um, fascinating things out there around the idea of um, innovation, and uh, there's innovation, and then there's uh, disruptive innovation, and disruptive innovation causes us to have to do things differently than we've done before. Regular innovation is just getting better at something we're already doing. This kind of mission work is a disruptive process, and you have to be willing to step into that. Uh, the last uh, last part of leadership is adaptive leadership. Uh, this requires the kind of person who can lead in an adaptive style. Some wonderful books out there, team of teams, and plenty of things out there uh, on the concept of adaptive leadership. I won't go into that, but I can point you to some of that stuff. But that's the uh, that's the leadership style that that we find uh, works in this space right here. So if you go to the last page, and I won't take any time here, but there's some of the services that we provide. Um, Sat Talks is coming up again uh, in 2019. Uh, we just finished our Sat Talks for this year, and the videos will be out starting the end of this week. So with that, there's the framework. I just ran through it. Um, and let me answer some questions. What do you suggest if you cannot get the priest or pastor support of the groups who uh, who want to help uh, in the churches? I, oops, I didn't put that in there. Um, there's my info. So I think I think what I'm hearing, uh, Tina, you ask in that one is, what if you don't get the priest or pastor support? Um, you know, that's a huge, that is a huge issue. One of the most, one of the most challenging parts of what we're doing thus far is finding uh, pastors and priests who get this, who get um, the significance of it. Uh, they're managing so many departments within the church and missions is just one more department and they're struggling to keep it all going. So part of our peer learning community is uh, a whole session on how to lead up um, and ways to draw your pastor or priest into this. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, I'm so excited about our partnership with uh, Bridges Out of Poverty is because I asked Lynn to introduce us, introduce me to some pastors and faith-based 
folks around the country who get this. And she's introduced me to a couple of people already, uh, <clears throat> one of which who will be a sat talk presenter next year, Tim Rogers out of Paradise, Pennsylvania. Uh, because we know that if we can get more pastors sharing on sat talks, that those stories will encourage other pastors to look into this a little more deeply. Um, when we get pastors to understand this and how significant and important it is and work with their mission departments on this, uh, it, it will transform the church. It will, it will change things in a dramatic way. But it's hard going. Great, great. Uh, Lisa, great question. Um, you know, we, <clears throat> we encourage folks to use, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Poverty Cure and the movie Poverty, Inc., uh, those are some really good resources that get into that, and um, they're worth showing. We we do the um, toxic charity. I I hand out toxic charity every chance I get early on because that begins to get people to thinking in a little different direction. But it you know it just takes a while for people uh, for people to see that. One of our presenters a couple of years ago was Florence Muindi. So when I'm talking in the workshops that we do around the country about paternalism, I will show her video because it will demonstrate um, how unnecessary paternalism is. There are some incredibly capable people out there, <clears throat> and we oftentimes we've just never been open to the idea that they're even out there. Lady from a group of congregations have formed their own five months. As pastors see the result of this group, they are getting a better idea of how to work in and with community better. Carolyn, that's that's a great one. We're finding that too, that sometimes one of the most effective ways um, is to start a 501c3 that is uh, that works alongside of a church. And part of the reason that works, in places where we've seen it work well is that it gives an outlet for the business-minded people within your church to uh, to participate. Because typically, if it's done right, that 501c3 won't have the same kinds of bureaucracies that the church, uh, to some degree by necessity, has to have. Um, do I have any books on for adaptive leadership? Not off the top of my head, but let me, uh, I will look that up and send that. I'll send that out somehow. So Leah, Leah, you've got my email. Send me an email and I will, I'll give you some good reading on adaptive leadership. Uh, the video on paternalism, it was one of our sat talks. Um, let's see, you're still looking at my screen, right? Everybody is? Yes. Uh, so if I go here, um, there you go. So you're, uh, this is this is our Sat Talk website, and um, we have the Sat Talks right now broken down by years. And um, I want to say that uh, Florence Muindi spoke in 2016. So there's about 40 videos out here, by the way, and these these videos are great uh, are great things to show uh, your church. We use these in our uh, workshops. And uh, our uh, coaching and consulting work, 
with individual churches. Um, there it is. So this one right here is Florence Muindi, and the bride is the hero, and the work that she's doing is just phenomenal. And um, there's no there's no Western um, influence there. Another one that we've had in this year, 2019, we have planned to bring them back, is Gaston Warner from um, Zoe Orphan Care. And um, their approach is one in which uh, an Anglo from the West is working with a Kenyan in the orphan care work they're doing overseas. And it's one of the most blended, non-paternalistic, bicultural leadership models I've seen. So some of what we're doing is we're trying to put examples of what we're talking about out there. Yep, so this is the, there it is, Adaptive Schools by Bruce Wellman. There you go. Thank you to all the participants today. And Tom, thanks again for your presentation. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Lynn. Thank uh -huh. you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.